Chapter 1. It was in the days of Ahasuerus, he was Ahasuerus, who ruled from India to Ethiopia, 127 lands. Because the purpose of this book is to publicize the miracle God did for Israel in the days of Ahasuerus, it begins by describing his kingdom. Ahasuerus was one of the kings of Persia and Madai who came to power in the year 3392, 369 BCE. He inherited the throne from his father Cyrus, Kairish, when the Jews had reached their lowest ebb. Seventy years had passed since the Jews were exiled to Babylonia, and they were hoping for their imminent redemption. God fixed their exile to be for seventy years, but when the time came, they were not redeemed, because they were not worthy. This pleased Ahasuerus very much, as we shall soon see. It caused great trouble for the Jews, however, because instead of partaking in the rejoicing of redemption and Yerushalayim, they rejoiced at Ahasuerus' feast. This resulted in the divine decree that they would be destroyed through Haman's plot. The book of Esther therefore begins with the word Vayihi, literally translated, and it was. Whenever a section begins with this word, it indicates that woe and grief will follow. The first syllable of Vayihi is Vav, which literally means alas or woe. The Jews were suffering from exile, and now they would be faced with a greater catastrophe, because of the feast of Ahasuerus was prepping. There is another reason that the word Vayihi indicates woe and grief. The word Yehi actually means it will be. The Vav means and, and it changes the tense from future to present. When a person is in serious trouble, he wants it to pass quickly. He wishes the future would become the past. One might think that the Babylonian exile was not so bad. The Jews actually had deserved to be exiled to Rome. God saw that they would not be able to survive in Rome, so he had mercy and he exiled them to Babylonia, where the rulers were more kind-hearted. This, however, was true only in the time of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. After Cyrus became the king and Persia conquered Babylon, the Babylonian exile became the worst of all exiles. The Persians were extremely cruel and issued decrees threatening Israel's very survival. When Ahasuerus succeeded his father Cyrus, the cruelty of the Persians was not diminished. The Jews were worse off than before. The Megillah therefore begins with the word Vayihi, indicating grief. Instead of the long-awaited redemption, the Jews would now be confronted with Haman's persecution. Ahasuerus' background was as follows. There was a Persian king by the name of Astyages who had no sons, only a daughter who was destined to be his heir. She was seduced by one of her father's courtiers and became pregnant. Infuriated, the king had the courtier killed and threw his daughter into prison. When her child was born, the king ordered that he be abandoned on a mountaintop to die of exposure and starvation. Providence intervened. The infant was, was discovered by a large dog who allowed him to suckle her. The child grew up in the mountains and developed into a powerful warrior. Before long, he became the leader of a large band of men. Since he had been raised by a dog, they gave him the name Cyrus, Kurish. In ancient Persian, Kurish means dog. Upon discovering that his grandson was alive and leading a band of robbers, Astyages sent men to kill him. Cyrus and his band proved too strong for the king's men and easily defeated them. The robber band then proceeded to the capital, where Cyrus killed his grandfather and assumed the throne of Persia. At that time, Daryavish was the king of Medes. When he heard of Cyrus's feat, he sent him a message that he wished to seal an alliance by having Cyrus marry his daughter. Cyrus agreed, and from the union was born Ahasuerus, son of Cyrus and grandson of Daryavish. Cyrus's wife was Darius's only child, 
When Darius died, Cyrus inherited the throne of Madai. Three years later, Cyrus died, and Ahasuerus inherited the throne of both Persia and Madai. The name Ahasuerus was only given to the king in the Megillah. His true name was Artachshast. This was a generic title given to many Persian rulers, just as Paro was the title given to the kings of Egypt. The Jews, however, referred to him as Ahasuerus, which was a pun on the words Chash Reish, a headache. It was said that one got a headache trying to figure out how to behave during his harsh reign. Some also saw this name as a contraction of Achiv Shel Rosh, brother of head. The head in question was Nebuchadnezzar, and the title indicated that Ahasuerus was his brother in cruelty. Just as Nebuchadnezzar had been born under the sign of Mars and was bloodthirsty, so was Ahasuerus. When Ahasuerus found out about his nickname, the Jews were ready with a more acceptable explanation. They told him that in Aramaic, Ahash meant leader. In Hebrew, the word for leader is Reish. Thus, they called him Ahash Veresh, the leader of leaders. The Jews were placed under the power of such a cruel king because they violated Shabbos. The book of Nehemiah describes how the Jews often kept their stores open on Friday evening after the proper time. As punishment, God gave Ahasuerus more power than he deserved, allowing him to oppress Israel in full measure. For this reason, he was given dominion from India to Ethiopia, that is, over the entire civilized world. The more distant a land is from its sovereign, the less he is feared. This, however, was not true in the case of Ahasuerus. He ruled from India to Ethiopia with an iron hand, and all his lands, far and near alike, had equal fear and respect for him. Ahasuerus actually lost a good deal of his kingdom. In his time, there were a total of 252 nations in the civilized world. Originally, Ahasuerus ruled over all of these. Before long, almost half his kingdom rebelled and threw off his rule, leaving him with only 127 lands. Ahasuerus received this punishment because he denigrated God's rule. He thus spoke of the God of Israel whose habitation is in Jerusalem. His words seemed to indicate that God was only in Jerusalem and not anywhere else. He was also punished for stopping the building of the base of Migdash. Reneging on the promises made by his grandfather, Daryavish, and his father, Cyrus. When Cyrus married Daryavish's daughter and was alone with her for the first time, they discussed the political situation. They said, we are both of royal blood. Why should we be under the dominion of Belshazzar, king of Babylon? Why not rebel against him and capture the great city of Babylon? Cyrus then led his army against Babylon, but could not take it. Belshazzar sent out a thousand top Jewish officers who decimated Cyrus's armies. While Cyrus returned in defeat, Belshazzar went back to Babylon celebrating his victory. That night, Belshazzar made a great feast for his thousand officers. He ordered that vessels from the temple be used. He drank from them with his queen and with his concubines and his officers. The king kept drinking until he was quite intoxicated. While he was in a drunken trance, a hand appeared and wrote on the wall these words, Mene Mene Tekel Upharsin. The Aramaic words literally mean measured, measured, weighed, and divided. When Belshazzar saw this writing, he became quite panicky. He wanted to understand the writing, but he could not read it. The words were in Aramaic but it was written with Hebrew letters. Finally, he summoned Daniel, who explained the meaning of the words. On the very night, Belshazzar's kingdom would be divided and taken away from him by Daryavish and Cyrus. Belshazzar was being punished for having made personal use of the vessels of the Holy Temple. Upon hearing this, Belshazzar turned white in fear and collapsed into a faint. 
There was an old slave in the palace who had served in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. Realizing the truth of Daniel's words, he said to himself, Tonight Cyrus and Darius will come and take the city. They will kill Belshazzar and his men, and I'll also die. The best thing for me to do is to kill Belshazzar myself and bring his head to Cyrus and Darius. I will integrate myself with them and escape being killed. With this thought, the slave killed Belshazzar that night. Some sources present a different version of Belshazzar's death. When Belshazzar heard Daniel's interpretation, he became very frightened. What if Cyrus and Daniel sent assassins to kill him in his sleep? He therefore issued a decree that anyone attempting to enter the palace would be killed, even if he claimed to be the king himself. In those days, there were no bathrooms in the palace. In order to answer the call of nature, the king had to go to the outhouse. The guards did not see him leave, so when he attempted to re-enter the palace, they stopped him. He haughtily announced that he was the king, but the slaves did not pay attention to his claims. He cut off his head. No one blamed the slave for what he had done. He had merely been following the king's orders. The slave then made his way to Darius and Cyrus and informed them that Belshazzar was dead. They and their men entered the royal palace and they ordered that every member of Belshazzar's household be killed. Belshazzar had a young daughter named Vashti. She had been sound asleep until she was awakened by the tumult. Vashti saw people killing each other and did not know what was happening. Confused, she rushed to Belshazzar's room and threw herself at Darius' feet, thinking he was her father. When he saw a pretty young girl at his feet, Darius had pity and spared her life. He brought her back to Persia, where he gave her as a wife to his grandson Ahasuerus, son of Cyrus. At the time of her capture, Vashti was 12 years old. Ahasuerus married her when she was 18 years old. He then made the great feast in the third year of his reign, and as we shall soon see. When Darius find, found out how Belshazzar had been killed through his own order, he realized that it clearly had been an act of divine providence. He said, unquestionably he was killed for the sin of the destruction of the temple and for making personal use of its vessels. With that, Darius made an oath that as soon as he sat upon the Babylon throne, he would order the temple to be rebuilt and that its vessels be returned. With the demands of administrating a new kingdom, however, Darius forgot his vow until he was reminded of it by Zerubbabel. Darius made his son-in-law Cyrus king over Babylon and Madai during his own lifetime. He also instructed Cyrus to see to it that the temple be rebuilt immediately. Cyrus ordered that the temple be rebuilt and all its vessels be returned to the Jews. The Jews began to lay the foundation and Cyrus began himself paid the wages of the workers. Two and a half years passed, Cyrus died, whereupon his son Ahasuerus succeeded him. One of the king's first acts was to halt the building of the temple and to take its vessels back from the Jews and hold them in his palace. Ahasuerus halted the building of the temple because of false accusations against the Jews. As described in the book of Ezra, and the scribe Shamshi wrote the following letter to Ahasuerus, If the Jews are allowed to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, a great rebellion will take place. You know how impregnable the walls of Jerusalem were. Nebuchadnezzar could take the city only after a long siege, and when he took it, he had the walls torn down and the inhabitants driven into exile. Only then could his followers feel safe. You should not allow the Jews to rebuild the walls. If they do, they will rebel and refuse to pay taxes and tribute. Since we eat the king's bread, we love him very much and do not want to see him suffer any losses. We therefore advise that permission to build be withdrawn. This letter was sent upon the advice of none other than Haman. He then presented himself before Ahasuerus and explained how the building of the temple would cause the king great harm. 
As punishment for this, Haman was hanged on a scaffold, precisely 50 cubits high, taken from one of the temple's timbers, as we shall see. In doing this, Haman was emulating his ancestor Amalek. As is well known, Amalek attacked Israel very soon after the Jews had left Egypt and had crossed the Red Sea. Amalek opposed Israel because the Israelites were on the way to the Promised Land to build the Holy Temple. They had thus sung the song of the Red Sea, You shall bring them and plant them on the mount of your inheritance, the sanctuary, O God, which your hands have established. For this reason Amalek opposed Israel on the way to the Holy Land. The nation of Amalek was the son of Asav, son of Aliphaz. When Yitzhak gave his blessing to Yaakov, he stated that Yaakov's descendants would gain permanent ownership over the Holy Land by building the temple. Therefore, Esau and his descendants attempted to prevent the temple's construction. God therefore prescribed vengeance against Amalek, saying, When God your Lord has made you safe from all your enemies in the land that God your Lord has given you, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heavens. Do not forget. And the very next verse states, And it shall be when you come into the land which your God, your Lord, has given you. The reason for this juxtaposition is that Amalek attacked the Israelites primarily to prevent them from entering the Holy Land and building the temple. Haman was the descendant of Amalek, and according to the tradition of his tribe, did everything in his power to dissuade Ahasuerus from allowing the Jews to rebuild the temple. Cyrus had issued an etiquette that anyone who tried to prevent the rebuilding of the temple would be hanged on the gallows. His curse was fulfilled in Haman. Both Haman and his sons were hanged on the gallows made of timber from the temple. This was a clear indication that they were being punished for attempting to prevent the rebuilding of the temple. Vashti followed a similar line. She said, This temple was destroyed by my fathers, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. They could not rest until they saw it in ruins. Now you are allowing the Jews to rebuild it? You will not escape punishment. Upon hearing his wife's words and receiving the accusatory letter, Ahasuerus was convinced and ordered the work of the temple to be halted. God punished both, both Ahasuerus and Vashti for this. There was an important reason for this number. God knew that Ahasuerus would marry Esther. She was the true descendant of Sarah, who lived 127 years, and who had brought many people to believe in God. Esther would give birth to Darius II, who, in the second year of his reign, would give orders that the temple be rebuilt. Some say that Ahasuerus mentioned here was not the son of Cyrus. He was not truly fit to be king, since he was not of royal blood. He had merely discovered a huge treasure that Nebuchadnezzar had buried under the river. With his great wealth, he bribed his way into a position of great power. The Megillah therefore begins by saying, It was in the days of Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus, and not King Ahasuerus, since he was not of royal blood. He did not have all the powers of a true king. As we shall see, this had important consequences to his dispute with Vashti. The Megillah therefore said he ruled from India to Ethiopia. This was very important because he grasped the reins of power on his own. The fact that there is no mention of Ahasuerus' father or family line also indicates that he may not have been of royal blood. This interpretation helps resolve another difficulty. The entire purpose of the Megillah is to show that Haman had issued the decree to exterminate the Jews, but they were miraculously delivered from his hand. Why then does the Megillah begin with the description of Ahasuerus' wealth? It should begin by speaking of Haman. The Megillah describes Ahasuerus' power and wealth to teach us that a great, what a great miracle it was that the Jews were rescued from his royal decree. Although he had issued such a decree, it was later retracted. 
Another king may recognize his debt to God for granting him such power. He would realize that God has the power to take away as well as to give. Therefore, he would have mercy on God's people. Ahasuerus, on the other hand, had grasped the reins of power through his own ambition and wealth. Since he was this type of ruler, the Jews cannot be saved except by divine intervention. When a king comes from royal line, it's relatively easy to convince him not to exterminate a complete nation from his kingdom. He would be reluctant to reduce the size of his kingdom that he had inherited from his ancestors, but he would also be affected by the fact that his fathers had been merciful. A king coming from an established royal line has a tradition of mercy as well as power. However, since Ahasuerus had grasped the throne on his own, none of this could be applied to him. Therefore, the only way that the Jews could be saved was by miraculous intervention. The very first verse in the Megillah therefore stresses the fact that Ahasuerus was not of royal blood and had seized power of his own. Another opinion stated that the 127 lands of Ahasuerus represented the entire civilized world. Therefore, the Jews could escape his decree only by a miracle. Had there been lands not under his rule, the Jews might have been able to flee from his kingdom. But since he ruled the entire civilized world, the cor this course was impossible. In later years, God would scatter Jews all over the face of the globe in order to ensure their survival. One might tend to minimize the miracle here. After all, the king's wife was Jewish, and Mordechai had saved the king's life. What could be more natural for the king to heed the pleading of his wife and his chief benefactor? We must be aware of the fact that Ahasuerus hated the Jews even more than Haman did. The only reason he didn't express his hatred openly was that it would not be seemingly for a king to display prejudice. The Jews were good citizens, but Ahasuerus felt that he had good reason to hate them. His royal astrologer had told him that a Jew would take the crown from him and reign in his place. Their prediction referred to Darius II, whom Esther would bear to Ahasuerus. Because Darius's mother was Jewish, he too was considered Jewish. Ahasuerus, however, did not know this. He was still married to Vashti and could not imagine that he would ever sire a Jewish heir. He could only assume, based on this prediction, that the Jews would ferment a revolution and would seize the throne from him. It could only be avoided, he felt, by exterminating the Jews completely. Ahasuerus thought of waging war openly against the Jews and annihilating them. But he had his doubts. What if the Jews were victorious? What if their powerful God intervened for them? He feared that open warfare might make itself He feared that open warfare might in itself make the astrologers predict predictions come true. Therefore, when Haman approached him with the suggestion that the Jews be exterminated, Ahasuerus said to himself, It's better that Haman do it, and I'll not be involved. I'll have nothing to do and nothing to fear. In this respect, both the king and Haman had the same motive. Haman wanted to kill the Jews, and the king wanted to be rid of them. Ahasuerus made his great feast because he wanted the Jews to partake of forbidden food and drink. God would then become angry with them and would allow them to be annihilated. Although Ahasuerus hated the Jews as much as Haman did, this fact is not mentioned in the scripture. Ahasuerus was a powerful king, and if the Jews had written openly about his hatred, it would have angered many nations of that period. The Megillah, however, alludes to it by beginning the account with Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus was the main cause of danger that faced the Jews. The story begins by telling how Ahasuerus killed his queen for refusing to obey his command. If one tried to minimize the miracle by arguing that Esther was in a unique position to speak up for her people, he would be able to see that her high position did not save Ahasuerus' first wife. Haman was close enough to the king to have Vashti killed. 
Our sages thus say that Ahasuerus killed his wife because of his friend, and killed his friend because of his wife. Such irony is not without cause. It's a clear indication of divine intervention. God's name does not appear in the Megillah. True, the initial, the initial letters of the verse, Yovai HaMelech Vahaman Hayoim, spell out Targum Hashem's name. Similarly, the final, final letters of the verse, Ki Elov Hara, that it had ended up badly for him, also spell out God's name. Still, God's name does not occur openly in the Megillah. The miracle of Purim was not an obvious miracle. To many people, it appeared to be natural. However, it was actually a great miracle. There was an important reason for this. The Jews had committed numerous sins. They had bowed down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol and had enjoyed themselves at Ahasuerus's non-kosher feast. Although they had been exiled from their land because of their sins, they were now sinning even more. If God had performed an obvious miracle for the Jews, they would have thought that he had forgiven them without any effort on their part. They would not have improved their ways, and they would have deserved to be destroyed. God therefore made the miracle appear to be the result of a palace intrigue. It was not obvious that it was caused by divine intervention. The Jews would then realize that next time they might not be so lucky. Therefore, God's name is not mentioned in the Megillah. Similarly, this book is called Megillah of Esther, not Megillah of Hadassah, even though Hadassah was Esther's Hebrew name. The name Esther can be linked to the root susser, meaning to hide or conceal. This book speaks of a miracle that was concealed and hidden. Some say that God's name was not written in the Megillah because Mordechai knew through Rachakadish that the Persians would translate it into their own language. He did not want to place God names in it, God's name in it because translating it, they would substitute the name of one of their gods. Furthermore, when Esther wrote the Megillah, she did not know if the sages of Sanhedrin would agree to make it part of the sacred scriptures. After writing the account, Esther sent it into the sages and asked them to include it in their scripture for all generations. This was not accomplished until the following year. Since Esther was not certain that her account would become scripture, she did not want to include God's name in it. It is wrong to write God's name in a mere storybook, which might be thrown away. There is another reason that it's called the book of Esther and not the book of Mordechai or the book of Ahasuerus. There was nothing unusual about anything described in the Megillah. Ahasuerus made his feast merely to publicize his wealth and greatness. Mordechai's discovery of the plot of Big Son and Sarish was perfectly plausible. The same is true of Haman's hatred of Mordechai and his people, because Mordechai had refused to bow down to him. The one very surprising incident in the Megillah is Esther's marriage of Ahasuerus. Esther was one of the greatest Jewish saints, one of the seven prophetesses. The fact that she would marry a Gentile was highly unusual. No one could understand it until it was finally revealed that this marriage had been directed by Hashem in order that Esther would have the opportunity to save the Jews from Haman's plot. This book is therefore named after Esther. Furthermore, it was Esther who advised the Jews to repent by fasting three days and three nights. This act of repentance saved the Jews from destruction. The Megillah was therefore named after her. In those days, King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Shushan, the capital. The drama begins when the killing of Vashti on the seventh day of Ahasuerus' feast. As a result of this event, Esther was chosen to replace her, and was thus in a position to plead for her people. The Megillah therefore opens with the description of the feast. As we shall see, Ahasuerus made his feast in the third year of his reign. 
Until that year, his rule was not secure, as he was afraid his enemies would take the lands that he had conquered away from him. Although Ahasuerus thought his kingdom was secure, he was sadly mistaken. No matter how powerful a king he is, he's never secure. His kingdom can be taken away overnight, as was the case with Belshazzar. During his first three years, Ahasuerus was very concerned. He knew that at the end of the seventh years, God would bring the Jews back home from Babylonia. Besides, his astrologers had told him that a Jew would take his crown from him. Now, however, three years had passed since the time when the Jews were due to be redeemed. If nothing had happened yet, nothing would ever happen, or so he assumed. He therefore made a great feast using the vessels of the temple. Ahasuerus had not calculated the seventy years correctly. God would keep his promise, and at the end of the true seventy years, he would redeem Israel and bring them up out of Babylonia. Literally, the Megillus does not say when he ate, but as if he ate. It was only as if his kingdom were secure. He thought his kingdom was secure, but he had made a mistake in his calculation. The scripture now calls him King Ahasuerus, whereas in the first verse it referred to him merely as Ahasuerus. Until his third year, he was afraid that the Jews would dispose of him as king. Therefore, he did not use any of the royal title. At the end of the three years, however, he erroneously thought that God had abandoned Israel, so he sat on his throne and assumed the title of king. Even now, however, it was only as if he sat on the throne and established his rule. Although the time for Israel's redemption had passed, Ahasuerus realized that there was no guarantee that God's promise would not ultimately be kept. It was not God who was preventing it, but the Jews. If they repented, they would be immediately redeemed. Haman therefore advised the king to make a great feast, to use the temple vessels, and to invite all the Jews to eat and drink. This would be a clear sign that the Jews had abandoned hope of being redeemed. Ahasuerus made the feast to celebrate the fact that seventy years had passed without the Jews being redeemed. Even if they did not eat or drink, it would be not be fitting for the Jews to partake in this feast. Their participation indicated that they had given up hope, which in itself would hold back their redemption. Haman gave this advice to Ahasuerus in order to dispel his apprehension. At one time, Ahasuerus sat upon the throne, which was originally built for King Solomon. It was a wondrous throne, decorated with all sorts of jewels, as well as with clockwork animals which could actually function. When Nebuchadnezzar took Yerushalayim, he had this throne bought to Babylon. When he climbed up to sit on the throne, one of the clockwork lions malfunctioned and broke his foot. Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way that there was a tradition that only a king who ruled over the entire civilized world could sit on Solomon's wonderful throne. While Ahasuerus ruled the entire civilization, he sat on Solomon's throne. Later, when he lost part of his kingdom and was left with only 127 lands, he wanted to sit on this throne, but his, his advisors would not let him. Ahasuerus had a throne made for him in Shushan, and he sat upon that throne. The scripture therefore states that Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Shushan, the capital. Now that he ruled only 127 lands, he had to sit on his own throne. He could no longer sit on Solomon's. According to another opinion, Shlomo's throne completely ceased to function when Nebuchadnezzar brought it to Babylon. Although Nebuchadnezzar brought craftsmen from all over the world, they could not repair it. When Ahasuerus became king, he summoned the best artisans from Egypt to fix the throne, but they could not. Finally, he had a simple throne made upon which he sat. Accordingly, we recite in the blessing for Aftorah, On David's throne no stranger shall sit. Although Ahasuerus had many thrones in various lands, the one that was made for him in Shushan was the most important to him. He named his capital Shushan, since it was precious as a rose, Shoshana. God gave Ahasuerus the idea of making Shushan his capital. 
Previously, Shushan had no royal status. The great city of Babylon had been the capital of the empire, and there all of his predecessors had maintained their thrones. Ahasuerus had lived in another city while he ruled the whole civilized world. Only after his kingdom was divided did he make Shushan the capital. The Megillah therefore states that he sat in Shushan in those days. Prior to this, he did not sit in Shushan. Providence had directed Ahasuerus to make Shushan his capital because Mordechai had lived there since he was exiled from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. If Ahasuerus had made his capital in Babylon like his predecessors, the miracle would not have come about through Mordechai. Now that Ahasuerus was in Shushan, Mordechai would be able to save his life by discovering the plot of Bigson and Cyrus. Haman would see Mordechai refusing to bow to him and would issue a decree exterminating the Jews. As a result of the entire episode, the Jews would repent and return to God. Because of all the, this, the Megillah informs us that Ahasuerus moved his capital and, and established it in Shushan. In the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all the nobles and the servants, the army of Persian Madai, and the sheikhs and nobles of the land before him. Thus begins the description of the feast. As mentioned earlier, during his first three years, Ahasuerus did not place the crown on his head, nor did he sit on the royal throne. He was afraid that he would be overthrown by revolution and was not secure in his reign. The scripture now informs us that in the year 3395, the third year of his reign, he made a great feast. He had previously made a feast for a single day on the anniversary of his coronation. On his third anniversary, however, he made a feast that would last for 180 days. Ahasuerus had three reasons for making such a huge feast. One, by the third year of his reign, 70 years had passed and Israel had not been redeemed. Only then did he feel secure enough to place the royal crown on his head. This was also the year in which his throne was completed. Two, a fleet of ships had come to attack his borders, but Ahasuerus' navy overcame them and captured the entire fleet. Three, in that year he married Vashti, as discussed earlier. The scripture tells us the main reason he made the feast, however, was to show off his wealth. The initial feast was made primarily for his nobles and courtiers, but he invited his servants as well. He also invited the entire Persian and Medean army, as well as the various sheikhs and satraps who were under him. He wanted people who could appreciate his power to be at his feast. Initially, Ahasuerus sent messages to all 127 lands, inviting the governors to come with their wives, children, and servants. He also invited all the officers of his vast armies. Since his empire was so far flung, the nearest ones came first. They saw his wealth, partook in the feast, and left, leaving representatives behind. In the course of time, more distant governors came and did the same. The process continued for 180 days. The nobles of the land were before him. The king kept them in his presence, granting them fine apartments and uniforms of the best royal purple. Each day they would eat in the king's presence. The sequence of the verse is significant. First, Ahasuerus invited his nobles, his courtiers who were close to him. Next, he invited his servants who sat in his presence so that they would not rebel against him. The military was invited next because he needed them to retain control and gain conquest. Then came the sheikhs and mayors of the cities in his realm, and finally the nobles throughout his kingdom. Ahasuerus gave great honor to his servants because they helped him control his kingdom. The military were seated at separate tables, but the nobles were seated before him at his own table. The nobles were served by the king's personal waiters. Some commentaries explain the phrase before him as meaning preceding him. 
When a person attains leadership, it's considered correct of him to show respect to the previous leaders. Since Ahasuerus had literally bribed his way into power, as discussed earlier, he feared those who had been in authority before him. As soon as he became king, he made a point of snubbing them socially, so that they would be aware of their lower status. Now that he was secure in his reign, he could afford to be magnanimous, and he honored those who had previously been in power. He showed them the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the majesty of his royal greatness. This continued for a long time, 180 days. Ahasuerus was trying to make himself popular with his people. He wanted them to see that he was worthy to be king, if only because of his great wealth. It's a good when a ruler is wealthy. If he has private fortune with which to run his palace, he doesn't need to raise much money from taxes. Furthermore, a wealthy ruler is not subject to bribes and influence peddling, and therefore he treats rich and poor alike. Normally a person doesn't disclose his wealth, even to his closest friends. The fact that the king himself revealed his wealth to his underlings was therefore the greatest flattery possible. Because people would have to travel long distances from the end of the kingdom, Ahasuerus made his feast for 180 days. He did not want even the most distant leaders to miss the celebration. Every day of the feast, Ahasuerus would appear at the celebration wearing the vestments of the high priest that Nebuchadnezzar had bought from Yushalayim. This was the glory and the majesty that he displayed for them. Regarding the Kohen Gadol's vestments, God thus told Moses, You shall make holy vestments for your brother Aaron for glory and majesty. Ahasuerus displayed for his guests the glorious wealth of his kingdom. He did not display the tribute that he had gleaned from his many lands, since the leaders knew how much he collected. What he displayed was his personal fortune. The authorities who maintained that Ahasuerus was Cyrus's son explained this somewhat differently. The wealth that he displayed was that which he had inherited from his father Cyrus. Nebuchadnezzar was extremely wealthy. He had plundered all the silver and gold when he sacked Yerushalayim. When he saw his end was approaching, he said to himself, How can I leave this wealth to my son, who will in no way appreciate it? He therefore ordered huge copper ships to be built and laden with all of his treasures. These trips sailed down the Euphrates River and were sunk in the deepest part of the river where the treasures remained. When Cyrus decided to build the temple, Providence guided him to that spot, and he uncovered the treasure. This was the treasure that Ahasuerus inherited from his father Cyrus, which he now displayed to all his governors. When the Jewish leader saw the treasures of the holy temple on display, he refused, they refused to partake in the celebration. Ahasuerus therefore had to make a separate feast for them. The verse literally says that he showed them the wealth of the glory of his kingdom. This indicates that the glory of his kingdom was a result of its wealth. Other kings might merely allow their wealth to lie in their treasuries. Ahasuerus made use of his to make up for his shortcomings. The fact of Ahasuerus's great wealth further enhances the miracle through which the Jews were saved from Haman's decree. Ahasuerus was a wealthy king who neither, neither needed the taxes the Jews would pay nor any bribes they could offer. Still, he was convinced in the end to retract the decree. Translated literally, the two verses here read, In the third year of his reign, he made a feast, where he displayed the wealth of his glory in his kingdom. At first, Ahasuerus did not intend to show them his silver and gold, but merely to display his wealth by giving a truly royal feast. He displayed wealth that could actually be enjoyed by the participants. The verse, therefore, does not mention gold and silver, but merely wealth.
In the end, however, he was not satisfied with this, and he felt it necessary to display silver and gold. The wording also indicates that Ahasuerus did not make the feast for the guests to enjoy themselves, but only to display his wealth. Literally, the verse states that he made the feast for many days, 180 days. The expression yamim rabim, many days, can also be translated to great or long days. The feast began in the month of Nisan, April, when the days began to get longer. There would be plenty of daylight, during which he could show off his riches. The long summer days were filled with feasting and celebration. Every day was different. The treasures on the display were changed each day, and nothing was displayed more than once. The menu for each day's feast was also different. The same dish was never served twice. To continue in this matter for 180 days requires tremendous resources, so this feast was clearly an indication of Ahasuerus' power. Ahasuerus was so wealthy that making this entire 180-day feast was no more difficult than preparing a feast for one day. A single day's meal at this banquet would be enough to last another 180 days. His full 180-day banquet, therefore, was equivalent to another person's feast lasting 180 times 180, or 32,400 days. Before beginning the 180-day banquet, Ahasuerus made a private feast lasting for five days. This was a rehearsal for the huge banquet to follow. Some say that Ahasuerus divided his 180-day banquet into 18 sessions, with different guests at each. During the first seven days of each 10-day session, he feasted his guests, and during the last three days he showed them the displays of his wealth. He invited the leaders of seven lands to each of these 18 sessions, so that a total of 126 lands participated in his 180-day feast. The only land left over was the city of Shushan, his capital. As we shall see, a special seven-day feast was made for Shushan after the 180 days were over. Each 10-day session of the banquet included seven day, a seven-day feast. As seven lands were invited to each session, each had one day of feasting in its honor. According to this opinion, Shushan was not included in the initial 180-day banquet. Other authorities dispute this, maintaining that Shushan was included and that the seven-day feast made later was a special bonus for the residents of Shushan. When this was over, the king made a feast for all the people in Shushan, the capital, great and small alike, for seven days, in the court garden of the king's palace. Since Ahasuerus' main motive in making the feast was to consolidate his rule, the 180-day banquet made for his vassal states was not sufficient. He had to make a special feast for all the citizens of his capital, Shushan. Among the people invited to the feast in Shushan were the Jews. He still feared them and assumed that if he flattered them with such an invitation, they would not harm him. He also wanted to get them to eat Gentile foods, as we shall see. Because he wanted to flatter them, he invited great and small alike. Ahasuerus spent as much for this seven-day feast as he had for his entire 180-day banquet. Ahasuerus made the feast for his states first. He gave them first honors, because they were more likely to rebel than his own capital. As mentioned earlier, some authorities maintain that Shushan was included in the 180-day banquet made previously. 
Achishverosh had to make an additional seven-day feast because all the Jewish leaders left the capital for the 180-day period in order not to have to partake in the banquet. Mordechai had issued a, pro- a proclamation that no Jew should attend as long as they were in exile. It would not be proper for them to attend even a kosher feast, and surely not a not-kosher one. Even if special kosher food was prepared for the Jews, it would still be prepared by Gentiles, and the wine would be Gentile wine. When Aaron's grandson, Pinchas, led the great Sanhedrin after Yeshua's death, it legislated a prohibition against drinking Gentile wine. Under Daniel's leadership, the Sanhedrin legislated a general prohibition against Gentile bread and wine. This is alluded to in the verse, Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's bread, nor with the wine which he drank. The prohibition is directed primarily at privately baked bread, not all that which is prepared commercially. It is, however, an ancient Jewish custom not to eat non-Jewish packaged bread during the ten days of repentance, the ten days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. The second feast that the king made for the citizens of Shushan took place during the ten days of repentance. As mentioned above, the 180-day feast began on the first of Nisan. Since months alternate between 29 and 30 days, the 180 days came out on the third of Tishrei, two days after Ashana. The seven-day feast would end up in Yom Kippur. During such high holidays, the Jews would certainly avoid a Gentile banquet. Therefore, when the king sent out the invitation to his banquet, None of the Jewish leaders could be found. Under dire penalties, the king coerced the Jews to return to Shushan and attend his banquet. In all, 18,500 people attended, and once they were there, they also participated. Although Mordechai had issued a proclamation that the Jews should not partake of the feast, once they were there, it was difficult for them to refuse. How can a person sit at the king's table and not eat? There's also a teaching that a person should strive to see a Gentile king so that when Mashiach comes, he will be able to tell the difference between the two. The Jews felt that by partaking in Ahasuerus' banquet, they would also be able to recognize the advantages of Mashiach's banquet, the Sudas Levyasim. This was a great mistake because a person who eats forbidden food will not be permitted to partake in the, in the Sudas Levyasim. Furthermore, this banquet was spiritual rather than physical. According to one opinion, the Jews did not sin by eating Gentile food. When they came to the banquet, each one brought food from home. According to the law, however, a Jew may not attend a Gentile celebration, even if he brings his own food. This is especially true at a Gentile's wedding feast. As we have seen, one reason for the feast was Ahasuerus' marriage to Vashti. Therefore, even though the Jews ate their own food, their attendance was considered a misdeed. As a result of their participation in this meal, the Jews were laid open to Haman's decree. Normally, the best food is reserved for the aristocracy. At Ahasuerus' banquet, however, great and small alike were invited. The lowliest individuals was served exactly the same food as the most important. Since Ahasuerus wanted to show the citizens of his capital special consideration, he didn't seat them in the same place where he held his 180-day banquet. Instead, he seated them in the court garden of his palace. This was a beautiful garden filled with lovely arbors and fragrant blossoms all decorated with the finest jewels. Because Ahasuerus wanted to show off his wealth, he invited his original guests inside his palace. Now that he was not displaying his wealth, he could entertain his guests outside. There was also a number of other opinions. Some say that not everyone was seated in the same place. Some common people were seated in the courtyard, those of higher status were in the king's private garden, and the most important in the palace itself. 
Others say that the people were originally invited into the courtyard, and when there was no more room in the courtyard, people were seated in the larger garden surrounding the palace, and when they ran out of room there, people were invited into the palace itself. Still, some others say this area was called the Court Garden of the King's Palace because it was a courtyard with one entrance to the garden and another to the palace. Chur Karpas Utchilas Achuz Bechevle Vutz Vargaman Al Galile Kesef Vamude Shesh Mitois Zahav Vikesef Al Ritzvas Behat Vesheish Vidar Vesecheras. White, green, and blue were hung on ropes of linen and purple, held with silver rings on marble pillars, with couches of gold and silver, on a floor of red, white, and black marble. Since the banquet was held outside, hangings were set up to protect the guests from the elements. The hangings, which were of fine white, green, and blue cloth, were set up like tents, hung from ropes of linen and purple wool, attached to marble columns. Some say that the hangings could also be closed to give each group privacy. Achashverosh made a banquet that gave pleasure to four of the five senses. The sense of taste was simulated, stimulated by the food and the drink. The sense of sight was delight, delighted with the beautiful hangings and decorations. The sense of smell was satisfied by the perfume of the garden's blossom. The sense of touch was gratified by the fine couches provided for each guest. The only sense that was not provided for was the sense of hearing. Although the king had the finest musicians, he did not provide music at his banquet. People have different tastes in music, and it's impossible for those who do not enjoy it to shut it out. Furthermore, music can bring a person to a very high spiritual state. Sometimes it can bring a person to a level where his soul almost departs from his body, and he enters into a lofty mystical realm. Since Achashverosh prepared the banquet, especially to make the Jews transgress the Torah, such spiritual edification was the last thing he desired. In the word chur, meaning white, the letters ches is large. The numerical value of ches is eight, and this alludes to the fact that Ahasuerus wore the eight vestments of the high priest at his banquet. For this sin, he was punished with the rebellion of Vashti, which transformed his feast into a wake. Drinking was from golden cups, and each cup was different, with much royal wine, befitting for a king. Even the lowliest person was served his wine from a golden cup. Every cup used at the banquet was of a different design. No two were alike. Once a cup was used, it was not reused. Some say that each time a person drank from a cup, he was allowed to keep it. The next time he was served, he was given a new cup. One might think that since free cups were given away, refills would be slow in the coming, but the opposite was true. There was much royal wine as befitting a king. The cups and dishes used at the banquet came from the holy temple. In comparison with these beautiful utensils, even the finest gold of Ahasuerus could just as well have been copper or lead. When Ahasuerus made use of the temple's vessels, a heavenly proclamation, a baskol, announced, Don't you know that Belshazzar and his men were destroyed because of their sin in making personal use of the temple's vessels? How dare you do the same? Actually, at this time, Ahasuerus deserved to die, as did his father-in-law, Belshazzar. He was saved by the fact that he was destined to marry Esther and father Darius II, who would rebuild the temple and restore the vessels in their rightful place. 
He therefore f survived the incident, but his feast was ruined because of what happened with Vashti. Some commentaries explain that although Ahasuerus and Haman tried to get the Jews to drink forbidden Gentile wine, they were not successful. The wine served to the Jews had been made by Jews and was served to them from sealed flasks. Since the cups were constantly exchanged, there was no danger that a Jew would have to drink wine left over by a Gentile. It's called royal wine, or wine of the kingdom, since the Jews had given it to the government as part of their taxes. When Haman saw that his plot was to make the Jews sin was unsuccessful, he tried a different attack. He denounced them to the king, saying, If a fly falls into a cup of wine, a Jew will remove it and drink it. But if the king touches the wine, they will refuse to drink it. They'll spill out the wine and wash the cup before using it again. Haman's words were true. Wine touched by a Gentile is forbidden to a Jew. But as one of the Jewish leaders explained, this is not because we lacked respect for the king. We are merely keeping the laws of our fathers. It would be a great shortcoming of your rule if people abandoned the laws and customs of their ancestors. As a sign of respect, he proceeded to drink from the finger bowl that the king had used. Let this be a clear sign, he concluded, that we do not refuse to drink wine touched by the king out of disrespect for him, but out of respect for our ancestors' traditions. The Hashsia Chadas Ein Aynas, Kichain Yisad Hamelach Al Kol Rav Besai, Lasais Kiratzain Ishveish. The drink was right, no one was forced, for the king had ordered all the stewards of his house to do as each man wished. Often at a large banquet, People are pressed to finish their drinks quickly. There are not enough cups, and people must finish so that the cups can be used for others. But here there were so many cups that no one was need for anyone to hurry. Since the banquet was to last for seven days, if people felt compelled to drink, they might overindulge. Not wanting anyone to get sick at his banquet, the king gave instructions that no one should be compelled to drink. Whether one wanted to eat first or to drink first, he could do as he wished. The meal was served in individual dishes, so that each person could eat as quickly or as slowly as he pleased. It was not served buffet-style, as is the custom in many eastern countries. It was as each man wished. There is also an allusion here to the ancient Persian custom. A huge 40-ounce cup would be set before each guest at a royal banquet, and he would be forced to drain it. People would get sick, and sometimes even die from such excess. At this banquet, the king gave special orders that a large cup not be brought out. Each person could drink exactly as much as he pleased, no more and no less. As mentioned earlier, the banquet was meant to gratify all the senses. Since nothing has been done for the sense of hearing, the king now included it in his orders. The fact that a person's wishes would be followed instantly by the stewards would gratify the sense of hearing. The verse literally states that the king had ordered all the stewards of his house to do the will of a man and a man, ish the ish. The allusion is to Mordechai and Haman, both of whom who are referred to as ish. Mordechai is called a Jewish man, while Haman is called an enemy, a hateful man. Haman naturally wanted the Jews to drink as much as possible, while Mordechai wanted precisely the opposite. Both had petitioned Ahasuerus, each presenting his desire. In order to satisfy them both, the king gave orders that each person be allowed to drink as much as he wanted. The stewards were also under orders to do as each person desired, serving each one wine from his native land. People use, usually prefer the familiar. As a result of this, the Jews were served only kosher Jewish wine. Ahasuerus' advisors had cautioned him not to force people to drink too much for another reason. 
since the citizens of Shushan came from all 127 lands of his kingdom, if they were all to get drunk, fights would be likely to break out between different national groups. Prejudices become much stronger when inflamed by wine. Achshversh had an ulterior motive in not forcing the people to drink. If a person does something wrong while drunk, he has a ready defense, especially if he has been forced to drink. In order not to give the Jews an excuse for their misdeeds, the king ordered that all drinking should be purely voluntary. Achashverosh wanted the Jews to sin by drinking Gentile wine, and eventually to be tempted into committing sexual misdeeds. As he well knew, one sin leads to another. Still, he made the drinking voluntary so that they would not have the defense that they could not disobey a royal order. Only with regard to drinking was there no coercion. The Jews were forced to eat. Fearing that they would not drink at all, and thus not sin, the king forced them to eat Gentile food. In this manner, the king also satisfied both Mordechai and Haman. Since Haman wanted the Jews to drink, they were forced to eat. But because Mordechai did not want them to get drunk, they were not forced to drink. Some commentaries say that neither Haman nor Mordechai wanted the Jews to come to the meal or to drink. Haman felt that inviting the Jews to a feast would be a sign of recognition and honor, which he did not deem fitting for the Jews. Once they were there, he did not want them to drink and have an excuse for the misdeeds. Mordechai, on the other hand, did not want them to come or to drink, since both would be likely to lead the Jews to sin. Achashverosh satisfied them both by not coercing the Jews to drink. This explains the Talmudic teaching, a man must get so drunk on Parim that he does not know the difference between the cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordechai. This might seem difficult to understand. Even if one is drunk, why should he curse Mordechai or bless Haman? Actually, the Jews' main defense was that they were drunk when they sinned at Ahasuerus' feast. Therefore, it was wine that caused them to be saved. Even so, they had to fast and repent later because they had allowed themselves to get drunk in the first place. After the Jews were saved, Mordechai and Esther had the Sanhedrin legislate that on Purim the Jews should recall that they were saved because they had been drunk. They were to drink until they would not know the difference between Haman's motive and Mordechai's in not wanting the Jews to be forced to drink at Ahasuerus' feast. This is a subtle point, easily forgotten, even when one is slightly drunk. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the woman in the royal palace of King Ahasuerus. As mentioned earlier, one of the reasons that Ahasuerus made his feast was to celebrate his marriage to Vashti. Vashti made a similar feast for the wives of the governors of her husband's lands and their ladies-in-waiting. Her feast was equal to that of Ahasuerus in every respect. Ahasuerus hoped to cause the Jews to sin by partaking of his meal and by committing sexual misdeeds. Vashti tried to get the Jewish woman to commit similar sins. Just as did Ahasuerus, Vashti showed off her wealth to the assembled woman. She even came in wearing the vestments of the high priest as her husband had done. Vashti did this out of pride. She felt that Ahasuerus had become king only because of his marriage to her. She was the daughter of the great Belshazzar. He was like Cyrus, who inherited the kingdom from his father-in-law, Darius I. She felt that she should have been crowned as regent, but since such power was not given to women, Ahasuerus had been made king in her stead. She looked upon Ahasuerus as if he had nothing more than her father's janitor. This was far from the truth. Ahasuerus inherited the throne from his father Cyrus, 
who was the king of Madai in Persia. After Belshazzar was murdered, Vashti was merely an orphan, and if Darius had not taken pity on her, she would have been killed along with the rest of her family. She was an outsider and only became queen because she married Ahasuerus. Vashti, therefore, wanted her feast to be equal to her husband's in every way. She did not want to admit that she owed everything to Ahasuerus. She wanted to show that she was the one of true royal blood. This is alluded to in the wording above, which literally says, Also Vashti, the queen, made. At first she was merely Vashti, an outsider and commoner. Only later did she become the queen. Although Ahasuerus and Vashti wanted to tempt the Jews into committing sexual misdeeds, they did not seat the men and women together because of appearances. We should learn a lesson from this and keep men and women separated at weddings and similar celebrations. Some commentaries maintain that the women were seated on an open patio in the palace where they would be on display for the men. The men would thus have their desires inflamed by gazing at the women. Vashti did not want to display her charms to the men, but was prevented from doing so for the reasons we shall soon see. One of Vashti's chief motives was to cause the Jews to sin so that they would not be worthy of rebuilding the temple that their grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had destroyed. God punished her for this, and she was killed. Ironically, as a result, Esther took her place, and Esther's son, Darius II, had the temple rebuilt. This verse points out the irony of the situation. If Vashti had not made the feast in the royal palace, she never would have been killed. Ahasuerus would not have summoned her, and her refusal would not have brought about her death sentence. Providence directed Vashti to make this feast so she would be dispossessed and Esther would take her place. On the seventh day, when the king's heart was merry with wine, he gave orders to Mehuman, Bizsa, Charvaina, Bigsa, Abagsa, Zesar, and Karkas, the seven ministers who served in the presence of the king Ahasuerus. On the first day of the feast, Mordechai and Sanhedrin assembled and fasted for six days, from Sunday until Friday. All week they prayed that God would not destroy Israel. On the seventh day, which was Shabbos, their prayer was accepted. Vashti was summoned before the king, and when she refused to come, she was executed. As a result, Esther would take her place and would be in position to save her people. Ahasuerus had sent seven ministers, one for each day of the week. The seventh day was Shabbos. Until this day, the king did not immerse himself in eating and drinking because he was concentrating on showing off his wealth. Like a good host, he ate and drank only a little bit. He spent most of his time with his guests. On the seventh day, however, after he had seen to all his guests' needs and displayed all his wealth, he himself also began to indulge in eating and drinking. Lahavias Vashti Hamalka Lefnei Hamelech Bechaser Malchus Laharais Haamim he instructed them to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, to show the people and nobles her beauty, for she was very good-looking. Providence directed that it should happen on this day to show how Shabbos protects the Jews. Vashti's execution, which was the beginning of their deliverance, therefore occurred on Shabbos. Although the Jews partook of all the feasts all week, on the Shabbos they remained home, fearing that if they attended, they might inadvertently desecrate the holy day. It was in this merit that they were saved. 
It was a custom in ancient Persian kingdom that during a banquet, the men would have their wives dance nude before the company. This would set the tone of the entire affair. Ahasuerus was drunk enough to want the queen to do the same. All the courtiers were boasting about the beauty of their woman. A friendly argument broke out about whether the Persian women were more beautiful or the Medean women were more beautiful. Ahasuerus interrupted, My woman is from neither Persia or Madai, but from Babylon. No one is as beautiful as she. If you don't believe me, I'll show her to you. Sure, replied. they replied, Trust the ugliest woman like a queen, and she looks beautiful. That doesn't prove anything. That's what you think, retorted the king. I'll show you that she's even more beautiful without clothes. With that, he turned to his ministers and said, Bring me Queen Vashti, wearing nothing but her royal crown. Providence brought about Vashti's downfall on the Shabbos to give her a fitting punishment. Vashti had a practice of drafting Jewish girls and making them work for her in the nude on Shabbos. Vashti wanted the Jews to violate Shabbos, since keeping Shabbos gives the Jews a great advantage. And it also speeds their redemption. Vashti, therefore, tried with all her might to make the Jews forget Shabbos, so that they would no longer have hope for redemption and the rebuilding of the temple. She knew very well that when Jews observe Shabbos, no nation in the world has the power to overtake them. By making the Jews violate Shabbos, she hoped to consolidate their subjugation to her and her husband. Vashti also made a special effort to make the Jewish woman sin because she realized that the woman of the house can exert a great influence over her husband. If a woman becomes immoral, the men would not be far behind. There was another reason that God made Vashti's downfall occur on this day. As mentioned earlier, the seven days of the second feast fell out on Yom Kippur. On the most holy day, the Satan has no power to denounce the Jews. It's a day when the Jews spend the entire day fasting and praying in Shul. Therefore, on this day, the deliverance of the Jews began with the downfall of Vashti. One of Ahasuerus' hopes in making the second feast was to bring the Jews to sin, especially through sexual misdeeds. He spent a good deal of time each day hatching plots towards this goal. On the seventh day, it was Yom Kippur, and the Jews absent themselves from the feast to attend Shul. Not having anything to do, Ahasuerus thought of a new idea. Summoning Vashti, he said, All week long we have wearing, we've been wearing down the Jews' resistance. By now they're ready to commit adultery, but they're ashamed. We must dispel their inhibitions. I want you to mingle with the guests in the nude. When the courtiers see you, they'll do the same. And before long, all the wives will be marching around naked. Whatever we do, the Jews usually follow suit. And before you know it, the Jewish woman will also be mingling with the men without clothes on. We can then let nature take its course. They'll sin so much that we'll be able to sleep peacefully. The temple will never be rebuilt, and they'll never be freed from exile. As a result of this plot, Ahasuerus suffered a great loss of dignity. When they heard of his summons, many people thought that he was an idiot. Instead of sending important officials to summon Vashti, he sent ordinary servants. He, his instructions implied that they were to arrest her like a common thief and bring her before him. All this was directed by Providence to give Vashti cause to refuse to obey the king's summons. She would then be executed and Esther would take her place. Providence also made this take place when the king was happy and drunk. When Vashti refused to come, he was more likely to act on impulse without considering the consequences of his actions. Vataman Hamalka Vashti Lovei Bidvara Melech Asher Biyad HaSorisim Vayiktsayf HaMelech Ma'ir Vachamosay Ba'aravoy Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's bidding through his ministers. The king became furious and his anger seethed inside.
Vashti felt well justified in not obeying her husband's orders. She considered herself superior to him, but she was of royal Babylonian line, a daughter of the great Belshazzar. While Persian women may be brazen enough to appear in nude in public, such a practice would be beneath the dignity of a Babylonian lady, much less a queen. If Ahasuerus wanted to drink in her beauty, let him do so in private. Why should she belittle herself in the presence of her inferiors? Also, Vashti did not have confidence in her looks. What if she displayed herself before the courtiers and they did not consider her beautiful? What if they laughed at her? She would never be able to show her face again. Ahasuerus was aware of her apprehension. He assured her that he considered her beautiful, and none of his courtiers would dare say otherwise. Let her come in wearing the royal crown and see if anyone would dare laugh at her. The king had thought of everything. There was absolutely no excuse for her to refuse. Vashti had another reason for not coming. She realized that Ahasuerus only loved her because of her beauty, not for herself. If she lost her beauty, she would also lose her husband's love. Vashti saw this as a sign of the king's shallowness. If that was all he cared for her, why should she degrade herself for him? Through his servants, Vashti sent her refusal in the strongest terms. Go tell your stupid master that in the house of my father Belshazzar, he would not have been good enough even to clean out the stables. You idiots, don't you realize that I'm Queen Vashti, daughter of the kings of Babylon? If you had seen my father, you would realize what a nobody Ahasuerus is. My father could drink ten times as much as your master, but he would never give such a foolish order. If wine makes Ahasuerus so crazy, why does he drink? Upon hearing her reply, Ahasuerus sends his top ministers, who had direct access to him, with an equally strong message. Pay heed to what you're doing. Obey my order and present yourself before my company. If you disobey, I warn you that you will be killed and your beauty will cease to exist. This message was duly delivered, but the queen ignored it. Go back to your stupid king, she replied, and tell him that his ideas are useless as his orders are, are, are outrageous. I'm the daughter of the great King Belshazzar and granddaughter of the famed Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Other than the king, no man has ever seen my royal body. Doesn't that fool realize that he's only harming himself? If the courtiers see my beauty, they will desire me and do anything to get me. How long will it take before one of them assassinates the king? And what if the courtiers are not pleased with my beauty? The king will have made a perfect fool of himself. Even a mere laundryman would not force his wife to appear naked in public. If he wants me to appear in public, I want to cover my body at least with a veil. The king heard her argument but would not agree to let her wear a veil. I'll come without the veil, but don't humiliate me by making me wear the crown. Again, the king refused. He didn't want his company to think that he had substituted a slave girl for his queen. Finally, she was ready to give in. Although the king was behaving improperly, they had agreed that she would appear naked. She calmed herself and prepared to enter the ban banquet room, taking a last look in the mirror. What she saw almost made her faint. A hideous rash had broken out all over her body. There was a large polyp on her back and looked almost like a tail. Among other things, this was the divine punishment for her pride. Groping for an excuse, she sent a message to the king. Since you want me to appear nude primarily to cause the Jews to sin, this is not the right time. Today's Yom Kippur and the Jews are not even at the feast. I'll appear another day without clothing, but wearing sexy negligee. This will excite the Jewish men even more than the sight of my naked body. Vashti was afraid that the rash and polyp would not go away quickly, so she did not want to commit herself to appearing naked. Even a sheer gown could cover her shameful blemish. She would dress like a prostitute, which would be sufficient to excite the men. The king was losing his patience. 
He replied that she should come immediately and completely naked. What could she do? There was no way she could appear as the king had ordered. Finally, she hit upon an idea. She sent her husband a note. I can't believe you actually gave such an order. What difference would it make for you if I wore a sheer gown? I'm sure your messengers would be adding to your word, have been adding to your words. Since I have not heard the order from your lips, I will not come. Reading her note, the king exploded in fury. She was humiliating him in the presence of his courtiers. If his own wife refused to obey his orders, how could he hope to run a kingdom? Out of love for his wife, the king tried to suppress his anger, but it was out of control, burning like a raging fire. The more he tried to control his temper, the angrier he became. Even so, Ahasuerus tried very hard not to be angry. He loved Vashti, and if his officers saw how angry he was, they would kill her without even asking him. His anger was also directed at himself. How could he have done such a stupid thing? Because of his foolishness, his beloved wife was now in mortal danger. He had to get it off his chest. He had to discuss this matter with his advisors. The king spoke to his wise men who knew the times, for it was the king's custom to place such matters before all who knew law and justice. Cheshver sought the advice of the Jewish sages and asked them to judge Vashti. He especially sought out the sage from the tribes of Issachar, who had understanding of the times. No matter how difficult was the question put before them, they could answer it without delay. When judging a case, they knew how to judge the penalty to the time. They were the sages who knew how to calculate the phases of the moon and the planets, and thus construct the calendar. The king realized that only such great sages would be able to judge such a major case of that of Vashti. Although the king usually judged capital cases by himself, he did not consider it proper in this case because he was an interested party. Furthermore, he was afraid to sit in judgment while in such a rage. If he sentenced her to death and the sentence was carried out, it would be too late for him to change his mind. The Jewish sages could judge the case objectively on the basis of a legal precedence. When the case was handed to the Jewish sages, they didn't know what to reply. If they found Vashti innocent, the king might take it as a slight. Here, Vashti had displayed gross disrespect to him, but the Jewish sages did not consider it a capital offense. He might even sentence them to death. Besides, they wanted to punish her for forcing Jewish girls to violate on the Shabbos, and for trying to prevent them from rebuilding the Beis HaMikdash. It would be very hard for them to find her innocent. On the other hand, if they judged that she should be killed, the king might feel sorry later and take revenge on them. Worse still, he might pardon her, and she would end up as their confirmed enemy. Although the king was now furious at her, his love could easily overcome his anger in time. They decided to give the king the following answer. As long as we lived in peace in our own land, our minds were clear and calm. We also had the Urumvatumim, which would provide us divine answers to answer questions. But now the base of Mikdash was destroyed, and we have been exiled to Babylon, and we have suffered very much. We no longer have the Urum Vitumim, and our minds are no longer clear. We are therefore unfit to judge a capital case. If we find that the queen deserves a death penalty, we might be sentencing an innocent person to death. If we find her innocent, we shall be accomplices in her disrespect for the king. We therefore cannot render a decision in such an important case. Our suggestion is that you present the case before the wise men of Ammon and Moab who live in your capital. They are expert judges, and you can be sure that they will hand down a fair verdict. They lived in peace for many years and have not been exiled as we have. 
They're like old wine, which is very clear since the sediment has settled. They're the ones who you should go to for this most important case. The Jewish scholars had another motive, although they didn't mention it openly. Ahasuerus clearly had fallen into his quandary because of wine. Ammon and Moab had come into existence through wine. Lot had drunk wine and had slept with his daughters, fathering Ammon and Moab. They would therefore be best suited to judge an accusation that involved wine and drunkenness. Vakarave love Karshna Shesar Admasa Tarshish Meres Marsna Memuchan Shivasare Parasumadai Roy Penehamalachi Hayeshvim Rishaina Bemalchas. Those close to him were Karshna Shesar Admasa Taresh Meres Marsna Memuchan, seven princes of Persia and Madai who had direct access to the king and who sat first in the kingdom. After the sages disqualified themselves from the case, the king turned to the seven princes of Persia and Madai, who were closest to him. The, these men represented the various parts of his kingdom. Karshna was from Africa, and he was in charge of the royal stables and livestock. Shesar was from India and was in charge of the royal wine cellars. Admasa was from Western Europe and was in charge of the royal fields and grass. He also served as a chief justice. Tarshish was from Egypt, and he was in charge of the royal household. Meres, Marsna, and Mamuchan were from Yerushalayim, and since they understood everything, they were placed in charge of the others. They were also in charge of the king's appointments. There are other opinions regarding the nationalities of these advisors. Some authorities maintain that they were actually Jewish. Others held that they were Gentiles. There's an opinion that they were from Amnon and Moab, the king had taken the advice of the Jewish sages and had presented the case to these men who were among his closest advisors. Each of these advisors presided on a different day of the week. Since it was now Saturday, the seventh day, it was Memuchan's turn, and he therefore, as we shall see, spoke first. Memuchan also spoke first because he was the least of the king's advisors. It was the custom to allow the most junior member to speak first, so he would not feel compelled to go along with his superiors. According to the opinion that these were Jewish advisors, Muchan was none other than the prophet Daniel. The Persian government had passed a law prohibiting prayers to any god for a 30-day period, and when Daniel violated it by praying to God, he was cast into the lion's den. Since he was willing to risk his life for God, he was worthy of miracles and was saved. After this event, Daniel was given the name Memuchan, which literally means prepared. He was prepared to suffer and prepared to experience miracles. Providence had decreed that Vashti be judged by Daniel. Although the other Jewish sages had disqualified themselves, Daniel had faith that God would not let any harm come to him. Just as God had delivered him previously, so he would protect him now. Daniel also suffered from a Persian wife that Belshazzar had given him. She was wealthier than he and lorded over him, forcing him to speak Persian. Now that Daniel was judging Vashti, he would have an opportunity to rectify his personal situation. Daniel was a holy prophet who obviously would not marry a Persian Gentile. Because Belshazzar had made the match, he had no choice but to marry the woman. But first, he had her converted to Judaism. As mentioned earlier, there was another opinion that these advisors were Gentiles. According to this opinion, Mamuchan was actually Haman. He was given the nickname Mamuchan because he was prepared to cause trouble. The first trouble he caused was Vashti's death sentence. Haman bore a grudge against Vashti because she went out of her way to snub him. 
When Vashti invited all the ladies of Shushan to her feast, she had neglected Haman's wife. Haman had a daughter, and he hoped that Vashti, with Vashti out of the way, his daughter would be a major candidate for the queen. According to the law, what must be done with the queen Vashti, who did not obey the king's orders through his ministers? The king asked his seven ministers to advise him as to the penalty for a queen who disobeys the king. Since he loved her, he did not want them to hand down a death sentence. She had shown him gross disrespect, so he could not openly forgive her on his own. To do so would demonstrate that he was a king who could not defend his own honor. But if his chief advisors advocated clemency, he would not demean himself by accepting their advice. The king gave his advisors subtle hints that he desired clemency. He reminded them that he wanted to know what to do with Queen Vashti. Judge her as a queen and not as a commoner. Remember that I made an improper demand when I asked her to appear naked before the entire company. Furthermore, I did not give the order personally, but through my ministers. The order was given through the ministers without thought, and the queen knew that I was drunk. She might deserve some punishment, but not death. Let her remain queen even if she is punished. Do not be too quick to judge my wife. I know that the law clearly prescribes a death penalty for such a case, but if you study the details closely enough, you might find some way to judge her leniently. Perhaps an exception can be made because she's my wife. The law demanding absolute obedience to the king might be somewhat more lenient if the case, in the case of a wife, with whom he is so familiar. If I could pardon her on my own, I would, but as you know, the situation makes that course of action impossible. You are independent judges. I can suggest, but not give orders. The queen's life is in your hands. Mamuchan spoke up before the king and the princes. Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the nobles and all the people in all the lands of King Ahasuerus. What the queen did will become known to all the women, and they will look down upon their husbands, saying that King Ahasuerus ordered Queen Vashti to come before him, and she did not come. Even today the ladies of Persia and Madai, who heard what the king queen did, will speak about it to all the king's nobles, and it will cause much, much disrespect and anger. Mamuchan saw that Ahasuerus wanted to acquit Vashti and not punish her for humiliating him. He also saw that other princes were afraid to disagree with the king and were ready to go along with him. While they were discussing this, he spoke up and offered his advice, even though he was the least of the king's advisors. It was poetic justice that Haman was the one to bring up about the downfall of Vashti, according to the opinion that Mamuchan was Haman. As a result of his action, Esther would become queen, and she would bring about Haman's downfall. He could have whispered his advice into the king's ear, or spoken it quietly, but he spoke up in a loud voice so all could hear him. Everyone would know that he had dug the pit into which he would fall. Haman was very anxious to do away with Vashti. He bore a deep personal hatred for her, and he had a daughter for who he wanted to see take her place. 
The royal astrologers informed Haman that the king's wife would point the finger at him and have him killed. Assuming that this referred to Vashti, he wanted to get her out of the way. If his own daughter were queen, such a danger would never exist. I know that I'm the least of the king advi king's advisors, said Haman, and I shouldn't speak before my betters, but since I eat the king's bread, I must speak up for his benefit. I must advise the king not to judge Vashti by himself. She has not harmed only the king, but every man in the kingdom. There is no way that she can ex escape responsibility. It may be possible to justify Vashti's actions, but she must be sentenced to death for this manner in which she humiliated the king. If she was spared, the world would not know of her excuses and her justifications. People would only know that Vashti showed gross disrespect for the king and got away with it. There's no way you could pardon her. She has wronged not only you, but your entire kingdom. She said you were an idiot, not even fit to clean her father's stables. If you're not worthy of being a king, all the people in your kingdom are fools for accepting you. Besides, women will hear that the queen got away with such disrespect, and they will also want to be liberated. Throughout your kingdom, men will no longer be respected by their wives. As king, you have responsibility to more than yourself. Your honor is the honor of your people. No king has a right to permit such disrespect. I'm fully aware of Ashti's true nature. If you allow her to live, she'll begin a woman's liberation movement. She'll teach all the women to take her in as example. I know very well how much she despises men. Yes, I have had experiences with her. She insulted me and even struck out to me. She might be the daughter of a king, but I'm Haman, son of Hamdasa, of a very important family. I'm proud of the fact that you chose me as one of your ministers. Vashti had the audacity to insult one of the king's favorites, and when she invited all the ladies to Shushan of her banquet, she deliberately snubbed out my wife. Vashti's a proud, stubborn woman, and she will never subjugate herself to you. If you have not been able to change her after all this time, you never will change her, no matter how much you punish her. If you let her live, you will never be respected in your kingdom. You just spent all this money to make the banquet in order to gain universal respect, and Vashti's, Vashti's one act can undo it all now. I realize that you want to spare her life, but if we do, you'll be the one to lose. People will know that a girl who was brought here from Babylon as a prisoner of war can get away with disrespect towards the king. If a king can't control his own household, how is he expected to control a great kingdom? You know how the stories are distorted as they travel. People won't know that you ordered her to appear in the nude. They'll merely hear that you summoned her and she refused to come. Every woman in the kingdom will take her as an example. Even if her, their husbands tell them that she was ordered to appear naked, they won't believe it. People will believe what they want to believe. There's so much disrespect and anger. The status of men in your kingdom will be lowered and they'll remain angry and frustrated. If the king himself did not punish Vashti for her disrespect, what are they supposed to do to their wives? As your advisors, we also have stake in this. If we let her get away with this, people will think little of the, little of the royal advisors. We'll be ashamed to admit that we ever made such a decision to let her go. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree be issued, written into the laws of Persia and Madai, not to be changed, that Vashti never again come before the king Ahasuerus. Then let the king grant her royal title to someone better than she, 
The king's decree made in all his kingdom shall be heard, for it will be great. All the women will have respect for their husbands, great and small alike. Since Vashti had done such great harm to you and in your kingdom, you must take immediate action before the word spreads. You must immediately sign an order sentencing Vashti to death. A king's wife and children are usually not penalized for such disobedience to the king. But what Vashti did was more than disobedience. It was a public repudiation of the king's authority. Not only did Vashti refuse to obey, but she spoke out against the king. There's no choice but to have her executed immediately before word gets out about what she did. The second thing you must do is to proclaim a law that a wife must obey her husband no matter what he tells her. This must be written into the laws of Persia and Madai. If husband and wife are in different, of different nationalities, the entire household must speak the husband's language. A wife should not be able to do anything against her husband's will. All this must be express, expressed in the strongest terms in a royal decree and sent out to all the points of the kingdom. But the law will be of to no avail if Fashti is not killed. Let her be an example to all the kingdom. It's also important to make a decree that no one may come into the king's presence without his permission. Otherwise, Vashti may visit the king and plead for her life. If you have mercy on her, you will destroy your entire kingdom. Merely reducing her to a commoner is not enough. She must die. Haman was afraid that Vashti would get to the king and convince him to have mercy on her and pardon her. If this happened, he would have the queen as a lifelong enemy. He therefore got the king to swear by the laws of Persia's and Madai that Vashti would never again be admitted to his presence. Even a king would not dare violate such an oath. Haman was thus assured that the death sentence would be carried out. Do it immediately, continued Haman, without delay. Not only will your kingdom benefit, but you'll also benefit when you remarry. When the king has killed his first wife for disobedience, his second wife will be very careful not to disrespect him in any way. I also advise the king to issue the following proclamation. This woman was a king and a daughter of royalty, but she is being publicly executed for disobeying the king. Let this be a lesson to all. If you do this, all the women of your kingdom will respect their husbands, great and small alike. Even the lowliest man will be like a king in his house, and even the greatest lady will be subjugated to her husband. I also advise you not to take a wife of royal blood. All your troubles came about because Vashti considered herself better than you. Marrying a commoner and marry a commoner and you will have no such troubles. Just be sure that her character and personality are better than Vashti's. When Haman said, grant her royal title to someone better than she, he was virtually prophesizing that Esther would be better than Vashti. Esther would have an additional advantage. Vashti was killed by Haman. Haman, in turn, would be killed through Esther. Haman would be undone by another irony as well. Vashti was killed for refusing to appear before the king in the nude. Esther would deserve the death penalty for appearing before the king without being summoned, but the king would pardon her. Vashti died although she deserved to live. Esther would live although she deserved to die. She would live to denounce Haman and to see him die. Of course, Haman did not have Esther in mind when he mentioned the better wife. He was thinking of his daughter. He hoped that the king would be unsuccessful in finding a compatible wife and would eventually agree to marry his daughter. As we shall see, God upset his plans and made Esther the new queen. The plan pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memuchan said. Vashti was burned alive. The king did not actually hate Vashti for what she had done, but killed her because of Haman's advice. Deep down, Ahasuerus now fostered a deep hatred towards Haman for what he had done. 
Instead of openly punishing Haman, the king treated him like a best friend, eventually elevating him to the highest position in the land. The king's intent in elevating him was that his downfall should be even more greater. Instead of being spelled Memuchan, the name is spelled Mumchan. This spells the word Mumchan. There is a defect here. From this moment on, Haman's career became defective and blemished. This would be the beginning of his downfall. Vayishlach Sfarim al kol Medina Samelach al Medina Medina Chichsava va'al am va'am kelashenai lies kol ish seir v'beisai umedaber kelashen amai. Letters were sent to all the king's land, to each land in its writing, and to each nation in its language, that every man should be a master of his house, speaking in the language of his people. Scrolls were sent out to all the king's land, sealed with the king's signet. Each scroll was written in the language and script of the land to which it was sent. The scroll was a royal proclamation that every man should be master of his house, even if the woman came from a more important family. The man's language must be spoken. The wife must speak to her husband's language as a sign of respect and subjugation to him. Ahasuerus agreed to this point for personal reasons. When he married Vashti, he spoke with her in Babylonian, Aramaic, rather than Persian, as a sign of affection. She responded by lording over him. The idea that the entire family should speak the language of the man of the house was therefore particularly appealing to him. Haman also had a motive for wanting to lower, to lower the status of woman. Astrologers had told him that the king's wife would rescue the Jews from his grasp and would bring his downfall. This was one reason that he had Vashti killed, in order to prevent a future king from, queen from influencing the king against him. Haman wanted to make sure that the wife's influences would be minimal. According to the law now issued, if a woman behaved disrespectfully to her husband, he would be obliged to report her, and her penalty would be death. This law was so harsh, however, that few men would take it seriously. Most men love their wives and would hardly want to condemn a wife to death for some momentary disrespect. The decree, therefore, had the effect of reducing the impact and authority of the royal decree in general. Our sages thus teach us that if not for this first letter, the Jews would never have survived. When the royal decree went out to kill the Jews on the 13th of Adar, the Persians would never have waited until then. They would have killed the Jews immediately. Their hatred of the Jews knew no bounds, but now that the authority of the royal decree had diminished, they would not be so quick to kill an entire people merely on the basis of such a decree. They knew how the king could change his mind. Tomorrow he might change his mind and favor the Jews once again. So they would wait before killing the Jews until the allotted time.